Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and Vin is gone. We, we don't know where he is. He's been missing for... I'm just kidding. He's just off on this episode because we have Dr. John Grohall. As everybody knows, Dr. John is the owner of Psych Central, the editor-in-chief, the founder. Founded it, what, 22 years ago, John? 95. So 1995. I was in high school. Do the math. I don't think that's uh, 22. I, I don't know. I do know that I was in high school and you were starting this website and all these years later, you get stuck with me. So that's pretty cool. I wouldn't say stuck, but yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, while Vince is off gallivanting around America, John and I thought it would be really cool to have a conversation surrounding the mental health information that we consume on the internet. John is is an expert in internet media just because he's been around so long. He's the owner of Psych Central. He, of course, also reviews all of the stuff that's on his website to make sure that it's scientifically accurate, to try to give readers information that they need to know the difference between personal experience, which is what I write about, and research-based experience is what John writes about, and, well, just everything in between. So, uh, John, I don't know that I need to welcome you to your own show, but welcome. It's not my show, but I appreciate being here. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, it has your name on it. I mean, it's it's the Psych Central show sure. with Gabe and Vince, and we kicked Vince <laughs> off for you. So, no, I'm just kidding. Great to be here. John, you write from a scientific standpoint, and that has some some basic rules. Rules that the lived experience standpoint, which is based almost entirely on opinion, doesn't have. Can you give us some of the criteria that you use when writing an article to make sure that you are factually accurate and not misleading the general public? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I do before I write an article is I look at the research and see what psychological research, what research has been done, what studies have been done, what science has kind of gelled around in terms of co- the common wisdom and a an opinion that is shared by most of the researchers in that area. With all scientific research, there's always the opportunity for there to be an outlier or two in the data. But in most of the research, it's pretty clear that there's a consensus. And when there isn't a consensus, I'm happy to say that as well. So I go into the literature and I do a lot of research lookups, kind of like Google. And Google has a version of that. It's called Google Scholar that anybody can use. The databases I check are a little bit more journal specific and are more readily available to university students and and professors and things like that. And then I turn all of that research gobbledygook and statistics into something that is readable by the general public because um, usually has a lot of specialized knowledge that's the reason people go to graduate school for. So, If somebody did a study right now, John, that tried to determine if a new drug was working and they had 500 participants, the end result of that study would be how many pages? Between 6 and 12, generally speaking. Really? Yes. Okay. See, I, I always thought studies were gigantic. Well, the bigger the study and the more complex the study, usually the larger the write-up of the study in the published journal. But most common studies that are done on under 100 people, which are most studies in psychiatry and psychology, 
can be written up in, in six to 12 pages. The challenge is that, again, researchers are writing for each other. They're not writing for the general public. And so there's a lot of opportunity there to misunderstand and misconstrue the results. One of the things that I, that I always hear is that science proved, science proved, science proved. Science doesn't prove anything, right? Science looks at something and figures out that this is true with the knowledge that we have, that we have today. You know, for example, it's not uncommon for science to also disprove something that somebody thinks that, that science already proved. And the example that I always use is eggs. You know, depending on which era of history, eggs are either completely healthy for you or eggs are the, the worst thing that you can consume. And as we find new data and we understand more about nutrition, there's sort of like warring research on it. Yes, there is. And research is even more nuanced than what you've just said. It actually doesn't prove or disprove anything. What it actually does is say the chances of this being true are so much greater than it not being true given the data that we've looked at. There are so many different ways that you can manipulate the data though, and that's what most people don't understand because they, they aren't researchers, right? So you look at the data and you can't just read the study for face value. You have to dig into what kind of population did the researchers use to conduct their study. What was the subject pool? How was the subject pool chosen? Was it randomized? So there's so many different variables that go into making really good, high quality research versus, yeah, this research wasn't that good, but it managed to get itself published in a journal, which leads to another point, which is that there's a wide variety of quality of journals. So. To put a pin in the quality of journals for a, a moment, there's a, a really great example that I love from the 80s where a burger chain, we won't name them so that we don't get sued, conducted a study to figure out if they had the best sandwich. And what they did is they, they asked all the people that went to their restaurant, do you prefer sandwich A or sandwich B? A sandwich A being the one that they sold, sandwich B being the one that their competitor sold. But as you said, their data wasn't randomized. They were asking people that had come to their restaurant. Yeah. So so clearly they said, hey, you know, we love your sandwich the best. And they were like, look, you know, nine out of 10 people prefer our sandwich. But like you said, that, that was a true statement with their study. They weren't lying. But if you evaluated the research better, you'd be like, yeah, this is no, you didn't find a random pool. Sure. And that, that's exactly the point for a marketing, for an advertising campaign, for a marketing campaign, that kind of research is done all the time and it's perfectly acceptable. But when you're talking about treatments for a mental disorder or treatments for cancer, things of that nature, the stakes obviously get are much higher. And so you definitely want the research to be of a higher quality in order for people to make conclusive statements about what treatment should we use, you know, what kind of dosing, how long, things of that nature. One of the things that you said is that there's a wide variety of quality of journals. Now, I don't think anybody's surprised by that. There's a wide variety of quality of everything. But are there journals out there that, that the, I, I'm trying not to say the doctor community, <laughs> but are, are there journals out there that are really just designed to mislead the public? I mean, they're just, they're just essentially maybe somewhat fraudulent? Um, I don't know that a journal gets into the business to mislead the public, although with the advent of fake news and things of that nature, certainly that is going to become a greater concern. What does happen, though, more frequently is we have journals that are 
set up in order to make a profit, that they're designed to be money-making machines for the journal publisher. And with the advent of pay-for-play, basically, where an author, a researcher can pay a journal to accept an article, in reality, they're actually kind of paying the journal to publish the article. Technically, the journal is doing some sort of review of the articles, but for anywhere from two to $5,000, I can pretty much guarantee that I can get an article published in some really low quality journals and it just takes a few weeks and the money. So that's the increasing problem in academia. And the only clear answer, the only clear response to that problem is to be familiar with the reputation of each journal. And because there are literally thousands of journals out there, that can be very challenging. And another problem that we have, John, is that not everybody is reading a study synopsis from Dr. John Grohall. Some of them are just picking them up from the local newspaper, from you know, a website that they like, and the study is literally being interpreted uh, just by a layperson, and, and that opens up all kinds of mistakes. Sometimes the, the process fails us, and because there are a lot of secondary gains being made through, across the spectrum of the journal publishing industry. For instance, most researchers work for a university and the way that they increase their credentials among, in the university area and amongst their peers is by being published and by being published quite frequently, the, the, the more the better. And you don't get published by publishing negative results. You don't get published by saying, I didn't find anything in the data. So that means that not only do you have to get published, but then you have to get recognized because there are something like a thousand articles, journal articles, peer-reviewed journal articles being published each and every day. And that may be a, a gross understatement of the number of articles published every day. So you need to stand out from the crowd. You can't just do that by saying blah, blah, blah in, in your boring research speak. You have to get headline grabbing title and everything related to that. So it's a whole media blitz that basically your university does on your behalf, which starts in the press room. And each university has its own newsroom, news staff that write up news releases based upon your latest research. And while they're usually pretty good, they usually take their cue from the researchers themselves. So if the researchers say, our data show that, you know, X causes Y, then the newsroom just repeats that claim. Now, of course, in most cases, researchers can't show a causal relationship. That's a very specific kind of study that you have to do. And most research in psychology is correlational. X um, increased or decreased, and then Y increased or decreased based upon that. And then they draw some conclusions around that. However, that's not a causal relationship. And a lot of times something gets lost in translation between the researchers and the newsroom, and suddenly we now know that something bad causes something else bad. We're going to step away to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. We're back talking with Dr. John Grohall. 
One of the things that you've mentioned a couple times during this episode is peer-reviewed. It has to be peer-reviewed. Can you explain what peer-reviewed is? Because when I write something, nobody reviews it but me. And you're saying that studies need to, well, be peer-reviewed. Yeah, so everybody understands most things that get published in a book or in a newspaper or on a big websites like CNN or Washington Post they go through a review process with an editor. An editor reads the article before the public does and helps improve it, helps ensure that it's stating facts and that if it's quoting people that they're quoted accurately and things of that nature. In academia, with research papers, we have something called peer review, which is a very similar process, except that people are reviewing the research studies to see if the uh, the science makes sense, the data makes sense, that the right statistical tools were used to analyze the data. Those peer reviewers are actually other researchers who do the peer review process as a volunteer activity, as a part of what they do in academia. They don't get paid by anyone, which is a very weird anomaly in the whole publishing process. Um, they do peer review because it's expected of them as a part of their academic appointment. I've done a fair amount of peer review myself over the years. It's, it takes a while. I mean, if you do it well and you do it accurately to review a study and make sure that everything makes sense. And, and what happens is after you've gone through the study, which can take an hour or two, you give comments back to the editors. You let the, the editors of the journal know, hey, these these are the issues I have with the study. And then the authors have to come back and respond to those questions that the reviewers have about the study and make sure that the responses make sense or edit the study to address the concerns of the reviewers. Every study has between two and three, sometimes even four reviewers. We know that there's a lot of misinformation. You, you just need to log into your favorite social media to hear people talking about all kinds of things that you know, aren't, aren't based in scientific fact, aren't based in fact, aren't based in reality. There, there's just a ton of misinformation out there. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think the research I'm familiar with, yes, there is some misinformation out there, but Google does a pretty good job of um, shielding us from the worst of the worst, unless you specifically are using keywords to go looking for that misinformation. So in general, Google does a pretty good job of helping filter out health and mental health misinformation, but it doesn't stop us from being exposed to it on social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. How can the public protect themselves? I mean, one of the ways it sounds like is to use Google or I just found out about Google Scholar literally at the beginning of this episode and obviously use reputable sites like, like Psych Central. But other than that, how, how can just a lay person, you know, literally a guy like Gabe, I don't have a doctorate, I didn't, go to, I didn't go to grad school, how can I make sure that I'm getting good information? Because it sounds like Google Scholar isn't the place for me because I, I'm not going to be able to understand the big words. You know, when I have a health question, I always go to the reputable big name sites to get a general overview of what it is that I have a question about. So I'm looking on the name brand websites. I'm looking at government resources that the federal government produces. Now, the only problem with government resources that I've, I've discovered over the past two, two and a half decades of doing this is that they don't tend to update their resources nearly as frequently as people who are in the business of providing up-to-date health and mental health information. 
So with that in mind, when you look at a government resource about information about treatment of depression, treatment of bipolar disorder, things of that nature, you have to be aware that sometimes that information may be a few years out of date. Things don't change all that much in, in mental health treatment. Um, they do change more in, with general health kinds of uh, concerns. I stay away from personal accounts and, and people's individual stories when I'm just trying to get the, the foundation of understanding what it is I'm dealing with or a loved one is dealing with. I may be interested in those personal accounts later on as I feel like I have a, a better understanding, a, a solid footing to um, understand the condition. But that's where I think a lot of the misinformation sometimes comes from because people talk from their own personal experience, which is fantastic. It's, it's really valuable. Cannot say that enough. However, a person's personal experience may not generalize to you and your needs and, and your specific treatment because of the condition uh, comes to you in a different way. You have different symptoms. You, you are experiencing the condition in a different manner than that other person. First off, I, I want to thank you for allowing the lived experience, the, the personal experience on Psych Central, and I know how much value you see in it. Uh, so somebody, you know, maybe not familiar with Psych Central or Dr. John Grohall might think that, that you're kind of pushing down the personal experience. And I know personally, because that's all I have, I, I write about my lived experience. So thank you for understanding the value in that. And also thank you for helping on the site to put it in its place. That's how I got started in doing this is that I was in a group, uh, a support group for people who were grappling with depression. And I saw the value of people sharing their experiences and it, it helped me too at the time. And it was very important. So I've always taken that to heart and taken it with me in my own journey to help when people need to understand what a mental health concern entails, that it includes learning about different people's personal experiences with that disorder. It's so important. As longtime listeners of the show know, I, I do a lot of speaking and writing about living with bipolar disorder. And one of the things that I always try to say is, if you've never met anybody with bipolar disorder, you now have a better understanding because you've met me. But it still means you've only met one person with bipolar disorder. We're not all the same. And one of the number one questions that I get asked is, what's your medication? What medication do you take? And they want to take that medication, write it down, and like give it to the person that they're worried about. And this is one of the reasons that I never share my medication, because I see the danger in that. I appreciate that you love the lived experience, and I think it's also important to say that, you know, lived experience has its place and it has its value. You've got to read it sort of with a critical eye and make sure that you understand the difference between that person's opinion and that person's fact. Would you say that the same is true? I mean, are doctors always right? Are, are doctors ever misleading us? I mean, like, how did we get supplements, for example? Well, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so doctors are also trying to make a living, right? And sometimes some of them, I would argue a small minority of them, go down a path of products and services that they're trying to supplement their income with. And I don't find them very compelling. And the, the evidence certainly is very rarely compelling in, in the research on things like supplements and whatnot. And unfortunately, there's really no way, you know, there's no database of bad doctors. There's no database of shysters and, and other people who are looking to take advantage of people who are vulnerable. And I think in mental health, 
more than anywhere, you have a lot of people who are vulnerable and open to a, a quick cure idea or, hey, just read this brochure book that I wrote that's 10 bucks and, uh, and it might have some value to people. Don't get me wrong. I think if you get value from a book and a self-help book, certainly, or uh, even supplements to some extent, you know, fine, but understand that some of that value, especially with supplements is probably coming from placebo effect. And can you explain what placebo effect is, John? Placebo effect is when uh, researchers are studying a new medicine and they're trying to understand, hey, is the medicine what's causing uh, improvement in treatment uh, in, in their symptoms or or is it just the fact that we're paying this person more attention that we're giving them a pill and, and the, just the idea of, hey, I'm getting this pill and it has some sort of active ingredient in it that's going to help my symptoms, that that in itself is a very powerful, persuasive suggestion. And so medical researchers decided, hey, one way to, to help balance out the, the impact of people getting a, a pill, one with active treatment, is to give another group of people a pill that's just a sugar pill. It doesn't have any active ingredients in it. And that way, they're, both groups are getting the same amount of attention from the researchers. They both feel like they're taking a pill and it's going to help them. And because of that, they can now study you know, whether, that, whether it's the actual active ingredient in the pill that's causing the reduction in symptoms or whether it's something else. So we use that, researchers use that term placebo effect to describe benefits that people might enjoy from from any kind of treatment that hasn't been scientifically proven. So the supplement, for instance, you know, you might feel like, oh, I take the supplement every day and it improves my mood. That's great. I, more power to you. But it may not be because of an active ingredient that in that supplement. It just may be the act of you taking that pill. And also, especially in, in mental health, let's talk about like depression, for example. You know, depression is that, you know, that feeling of loneliness, that, that darkness. You don't have anybody. You're now involved in a study. You go someplace, you know, maybe once a week. People are talking to you. You're calling. You're on the phone. More people are visiting. You, you can see how that and that alone, forget about medication, just now somebody is invested in your life could cause an uptick. And then, of course, even in mental health, it's an ebb and flow. You know, maybe the reason that you're feeling better is because your natural, you know, cycle of moods uh, is just up during the two weeks that the study is happening. So they want to make sure that they don't assign those to the new pill or they could get bad results. And the final thing is the researchers usually don't know which one is the active ingredient and which one is placebo, correct? So they're interacting literally exactly the same. That's called a double-blind study, right? Correct. Hey, see, see. You do know something. I do know something. John, it is always awesome to hang out with you. Do you have any closing thoughts for our audience? One of the things I I guess I would like to emphasize before we close out is just because someone has a doctorate after their name or an MD or something, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily an expert or going to lead you down a path of the best treatment available for you. Maybe they will. But at the end of the day, you need to understand and find treatments that work best for you. There are so many different types of treatments for so many different disorders that we don't, we don't have an algorithm to say, this is the medication that's going to work for you at this dosing level this many times a day. Uh, we haven't gotten there yet. 
and or that this type of psychotherapy treatment is is the most effective for you for this condition. So you need to be skeptical of people and you need to embrace the whole trial and error process of mental disorder treatment. It's not ideal, but it is where we are today. And when you read something online, look for verification, look for backup of a claim being made. So if, if you come to one website and they say, oh, taking vitamin C has completely changed my depressive symptoms, look for other websites that are reputable, their name brand, to verify that kind of information. Don't just take one person's word for it or just because someone posted something to your Facebook news feed or you know, your Instagram feed that suddenly, oh, wow, you know, vitamin C cures depression. Be skeptical, when, you, especially when it comes to health and mental health information. And the more outrageous the claim, the more likely it is not to be true. Or the more outrageous the claim, the less likely it is to be true. I know that a lot of people out there feel that they can't question their doctors. And, and you believe in, in participatory medicine. In fact, you helped found the Society for Participatory Medicine. And that doesn't mean that the doctor tells you what to do or that you tell the doctor what to do. It means that the patient and the doctor work together to design treatments that work best for for both. You know, I, I, I like that society, but I, as, as somebody living with bipolar disorder, I, I like that because my medical team has to get the information from me. They can't do a blood test. They have to listen to Gabe and design it. And then when I leave, I have to follow it. It, it's not like surgery where they're just knocking me out and doing whatever they want. I, I, I have to be involved. So, Absolutely. Treatment should be a partnership between the professional who's providing the treatment and the patient or a client. And it needs to be as much as possible an equal partnership that you're developing a treatment plan cooperatively together and that you decide on what are the goals of treatment? What, what are the outcomes? When ha- can we decide that treatment should be over because we've I've reached my goals as a patient. So I think all of those things are super important and definitely result in people more engaged in treatment and enjoying probably better outcomes from treatment. John, it is always cool hanging out with you. Thanks for uh, thanks for playing in our sandbox. Always a pleasure to stop by. All right. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, simply by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We will see everybody next week. Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psychcentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at gabehoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counsellor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at vincentmwales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com.
There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.